Thank you to our senior adult choirs. It's so wonderful to have a church of multi-generations. We have a worship band some Sundays and our senior adult choir. I think it's so wonderful to see that. Now tell me, how many of you, when they came to this, he has made me glad, you know, almost involuntarily, you wanted to, right? Yeah, I, I almost did it, just kind of involuntarily. What great songs, songs of joy and gladness. Isn't it, as a believer in Jesus Christ, that should be probably a, chiefly among all things, something that should characterize us is uh, joy and gladness. Well, today we're in chapter 10 of the book of Luke. We've been walking through the book of Luke ever since this summer. And uh, also, in the last several weeks, we've been talking about things related to mission, whether they be making disciples proper, maybe it be one facet of that, which is evangelism, or maybe another facet of that, which is counting the cost of discipleship, as we spoke about last week. But we're talking about mission. And uh, really, that's kind of been a theme, and uh, the mission of the church, and then the vision, future vision of Metropolitan, has kind of been a theme for this summer. You know, dating all the way back into May and June of, of this year, we walked through a church revitalization study. And through that, we saw many churches uh, called comeback churches that had seen years of, of decline, followed by incredible years of increase in spiritual fervor and health. And we said, what well, can we learn from those churches? And then we also, uh, a couple of weeks ago, at the end of August, the last two weeks in August, during our Bible study hour, which is right before this, we came all together for what we called Metro in Focus, which was kind of a wrap-up. And again, what are some things we can learn from these churches? And we said that the action step that we're taking from that is that we're going to uh, form up a team, a representative team of, of this body, this local body, Metropolitan Baptist Church, and look prayerfully as we are reporting and and, and gathering input from the congregation and asking for prayerful support from the congregation to look at what does God have for the future of our church. And in fact, shameless plug, but very important plug, next Sunday night, the 27th at the 5 o'clock hour, we'll be doing the first part of that time, we'll be doing the counterculture study that you see in your worship guides. But we'll also be kind of introducing the process that we'll be walking through over the next several months to look at what is God's future vision for our church. We know the mission of every church, whether it be a church right around the block in Wichita, Kansas, or whether it be at the ends of the earth, every church has the same root mission, which is the Great Commission that we see in Matthew chapter 28 and other places, where we are called to go into all the world and make disciples. Again, that's seeing people come to know Christ as their Savior. A disciple means a follower in Christ, and then mature in that relationship, help them as much as we can challenge and encourage them to to mature in that relationship so they too can become a reproducing believer in Jesus Christ sharing their faith sharing the joy and the gladness in their hearts and so that great commission that mission is the same for every church whether it's right here in Wichita the ends of the earth everywhere in between but each church may have a mission statement as we do which looks uniquely at how do we accomplish that in our setting and then a vision statement for how is God going to uniquely accomplish that through us what does that look like as we look to the future what does that look like so that's what we're going to be doing of course for the next several months and we want you to be here uh, next Sunday night the 27th as we look through that but that is kind of a part and parcel and part of all of what we've been talking about in the recent few weeks of things that are related to the mission of the church and we're going to look at that same sort of thing here in Luke chapter 10 as we look at the mission of the called out 70 so it says here in verse 1 of chapter 10 of the book of Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 72. Some of your uh, translations say 72. Some say 70. There's some textual variant there. But it's 70 or 72 others. He sent on ahead of them two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. 
I really wanted to draw some sort of parallel between this and the ark going two by two, but I just couldn't do it and be biblically faithful. So if some of you, if, if someone can figure out how to do it, come and tell me because I'm some two by two, there's got to be something there, but I couldn't figure out a way to do it and still be biblically faithful. But anyway, he said, into every town and every place where he himself, Jesus Christ, was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into that very harvest. Lord God, we do. We pray now. We pray earnestly. And, and by way of representation, we, as we go into our private prayer rooms and closets and prayer times throughout our week, we pray earnestly that you would send out laborers into your harvest. And God, we cannot help but think about ourselves as we are called out ones. We are called out to be ambassadors, missionaries, taking that good news of the gospel. Lord, and we pray as we have been ones that have been called out. We are the workers that have been called not only as ones that have been harvested. We have been saved, but now we can turn and we can go and share the message of the good news of the gospel with others, Lord. I pray that you would increase our faithfulness. Lord, you'd increase our burden for the lost. Lord, you'd increase our courage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. See, it's no coincidence in these last several weeks we've been talking about similarly themed messages about the mission, being on mission, going on mission. You see, missionaries are not just those that are sent out to the far reaches of the world. Although they sacrifice many times more than we might sacrifice, we are still missionaries. We are still ones that are called on mission. In my student ministry in Texas, we had a, 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 a lady that was a retired missionary, still had a great zeal for, for working with people. She had a great zeal for the gospel. She had a great zeal for students. And she actually worked in my student ministry, even though she was a retired missionary. And she said something very powerful to our students one day when we were studying missions. She said, crossing the ocean will not make you a missionary. Meaning, if you have a missionary heart, you'll have a missionary heart for people right here in in the United States as well. Does that mean that we don't go overseas because we've got plenty of people that are lost right here? Absolutely not. It's not an either or. It is the greatest and grandest both and that we could ever think of. So we talk about being on mission. On mission. Encouraging ourselves. Reminding ourselves that as we go we experience the joy and gladness that God has called us to. And he gives us every provision that we need. And so we see this example here from Luke chapter 10. Where... Uh, just as John the Baptist was, was sent before Jesus Christ as he went into every town, so they were sent before Jesus Christ into every town in which he went. And in the same way we are called to go before Jesus, he uses us again as his plan A with no plan B to take the good news of the gospel into the world. We are the ones called to take this wonderful message. And even though we might think that we are weak, and we might think surely God could have thought a better way to do this, God is his infinite wisdom. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He said, I'm calling you, the ones who have been saved, to go and take this wonderful message. And so just as John the Baptist was sent before Jesus, so these 70 were sent before Jesus as well. And so we too are sent out before Jesus, taking the message as he goes and he walks alongside us. And so he says, after this, verse 1, very simply, after this. What is the after this? Well, much of what happened in, in uh, Luke chapter 9, one of those pieces we saw last week was a counting the cost of discipleship. 
the, the high price of discipleship. And remember, he called his followers, his disciples. At that point, he was talking to the inner 12, and then he turned it to the larger group of those that were following him. Because you remember the previous chapter before that as well, there was a large group that was following because he had done incredible miracles. One of those was feeding 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. He had a crowd. And he was testing them. He was probing their sincerity of their commitment. Because Jesus Christ doesn't want easy belief. And in fact, that's no true belief at all. Unless we come to the place where we realize that I'm going to make Jesus Christ my Savior. The one who saves me from my sin. And also my Lord. The one who has control of my life. That's a true follower of Christ. That's a true follower. And so Jesus kind of narrows the focus. And he says to them, if anyone wants to come after me, he's got to take up his cross and follow me. And remember, we said that the disciples who are hearing this on that side of what we know the cross to be, the cross of Jesus Christ, which was the implementation of our salvation, we were saved through the cross, and we think it's wonderful and beautiful. They saw it only as a gruesome instrument of death. And so it was a very powerful picture that Jesus painted for them. Later in that same chapter, we see right before this setting, he says, if you're going to follow me, Even the foxes have a place to lay their head. Even a fox has a hole in which he can stay, but you will have no place. And if you follow me, you have to sacrifice much. Now, that doesn't mean that literally in our context that we may not have a place to lay our head. We don't even have a bed to lay our head on. But what he's saying in that context is that very well may be the case. And what he's saying in our context is that we have to be willing to sacrifice all for Jesus. And so we kind of addressed the big question last week that was kind of hanging out there, you know, especially for those who have maybe never heard the gospel message of following Jesus Christ. And the, the, the question is, why? Why in the world would we want to follow someone who we have to be prepared to die for? And why would we want to follow someone, even if we don't die, we have to be willing to sacrifice all of the creature comforts, if necessary. Doesn't mean that it's definitely going to have to happen. But if necessary, whatever it may be that constitutes our life, we have to be willing to give up. Why in the world would we want to follow Jesus? Because Jesus is the one that answers the deepest questions of life. How can I be forgiven? Even if people have no concept of of any sort of religious system, there's this gnawing within that I've done wrong and it needs to be made right. How can I be forgiven? Jesus is the one that answers the question of forgiveness. One of the greatest questions, however it is quantified, however it is addressed, when a person just sits down in that moment of quiet and says, what in the world am I here for? What we might call the question of purpose. Jesus Christ answers the question of purpose. We are created in the image of God, even though we are separated from God because of our sin. God in his mercy must judge sin, but yet he loves us. And so what did he do? He provided Jesus Christ to take the sacrifice of our sin. And if we give our life to Jesus... We're made whole, we're made new. And then we are given the purpose and we are given the mission of taking the greatest news that has ever been given to the world. Not only that, but as we sung about just a few moments ago, we are given joy and we are given gladness. We are given joy and we are given gladness. Does that mean that we are problem free as a Christian? No, there is difficulty in the life of a Christian. And in fact, if we treat it correctly by clinging to the robe, the proverbial robe of Jesus Christ, then we grow in him and we grow in joy. Through difficulty grows joy. And so he says, remember all of these things. This is the context for this. And as we come to 
chapter 10, verse 1. He says, after all of this, he appointed 70 to go out and to take this message. He sent them two by two in every town where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. If you've been attending for a while now, you know I use quite a few agrarian illustrations because of the fact that my father-in-law is a farmer. And it's so apropos, we knew Jesus used it because it's, it, it speaks so well, even in a kind of a, a morphing non-agrarian society of which we live in the year 2015, but especially in that context. So much about growth and, and, and botany and, and those sorts of things speak to spiritual life and spiritual growth. And so we see here, he says, the harvest is plentiful. That means that there are people that are ready. They're hurting in life. They're having difficulty in life. They're searching for answers in life. And they are right there. They are primed to be harvested. But he says the workers are few. He needs people to go and share the good news. Again, God could have plastered it on some sort of cosmic, spiritual, magical billboard, the message of the gospel. But he chose instead to use us. You know, have you ever been out uh, people watching? Isn't that a great hobby? You know, you kind of sit in a mall or maybe an airport. There's some great places just people watch, right? I'm sure we've all been people watch. They probably looked at me and said, what in the world's with that guy, right? But we people watch. It's just kind of interesting. We do it and we kind of catch ourselves just kind of staring and following for whatever reason, maybe just totally innocuous. But either way, we people watch from time to time. But has the Holy Spirit ever gotten a hold of you and said, you know, I wonder what that person's story is. I wonder what her story is. I wonder what his story is. Maybe it's somebody that the down and out nature of their life is really obvious. Maybe it's someone who's not. Maybe you look at someone that, uh, you know, is just really has a difficult life. You see it written all over their face. You know, the proverb uh, that the way of the sinner is hard has just lived out and become true. is just plastered all over their life and their face and you just feel for them. Or maybe it's just somebody that looks like they have all those things together in life, but maybe you see the stress on their face and you say, I wonder if they're living for the things of the world. And it's leaving them empty, leaving them stressed. People watching. Do we watch people with the open eyes of Jesus? Do we think they are part of the harvest? They're hurting. They desperately need me to labor. So we see the first thing is the need of the mission. The need of the mission. The need of the mission is great. The harvest is truly great. When we look on people with spiritual motivation, God will answer that prayer for spiritual motivation. He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Sometimes the answer to that earnest prayer is a finger pointing at yourself or a face that looks in the mirror. Pray that the Lord will send laborers into the harvest and he will answer the prayer. He'll answer the prayer for motivation as well. When we say, God, give me opportunity. God, give me a broken heart. And God, give me courage when I know it's hard for me to speak. God will answer those earnest prayers for the harvest. The second thing that we see here is opposition to that very mission. So he says, go your way and behold, I am sending you out in, as lambs in the midst of wolves. He says, now here's caution. You're going into the world and some will reject you. Some, even as we see in this very hour here in 2015, in the month of September 2015, there are some of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are being physically persecuted for their faith. Now here in America, at least at this point, although it may be upon the horizon, at this point, we don't face the same sort of level of persecution that other believers do in different places in the world. 
But if we're not catching any sort of maybe sideways glance or any sort of question or any sort of look at us like, what in the world are you talking about? Or you might be weird or any question of what we're saying. It makes us wonder if we are really out there on the front lines. The Bible tells us that anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It doesn't say they might, but it says they will. Now, admittedly, the persecution in a different context in our world may look quite different. But the mission is worth what we lose. Again, ask the Lord to break our heart. Ask the Lord as we, to almost spiritually, people watch. Is our heart broken for them? Opposition to the mission. But when we are sent out into the midst of those wolves, wolves make us trust. Quote, unquote, wolves make us trust. It's personified. Not only can it be people that persecute us, but it could be the very difficulty that comes with sharing our faith. It could be challenged on certain things. It could be the fact that we might lose something for our faith, but yet those things, those wolves of life, garner trust. They build trust in our life, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And verse 4 says this, carry no money bag. No knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one along the road. The first thing that we see is provision for the mission. He provides all that we need. Now, in that context, that very much was a very palpable trust, uh, uh, action of trust for those that were sent out, those 70. He says, don't take anything with you. When you go on your mission, trust me for your provision. It kind of echoes what we saw with the children of Israel and the manna in the wilderness. God says, trust me to provide all that you need. Trust me to provide all that you need so that your focus is right. That your focus is right. And that's the second thing that we see, focus on the mission. He says, don't greet anyone along the way. Does that mean he's just saying, you guys just kind of walk like this, you just kind of grunt at people as you go? No. I think we know that probably the obvious answer is a no to that. What he means is in that context, that day and age, they would engage, especially if it was someone new to the town and someone seemed important, they would do these elaborate greeting ceremonies, oftentimes accompanied by a meal. And Jesus wasn't necessarily focusing on the practical so much, although that was true. You're cutting into the actual time of sharing that the Messiah has come. But he's saying essentially, focus, focus. You're going out to share the gospel. The task is too important and the time is too short. As we are going into the world, our task is too important and our time is too short. Trust the provision for the mission. Trust the focus. You know, I think this fits very nicely into what we see in Matthew chapter 6. Remember when he tells us, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. He means for the life of a believer, what we should be spending our days doing are those things that have eternal significance. If we live our life for the things of the world, and as we talked about last week, even if we had enough resources that are disposable to somehow keep that kind of pleasure cycle going, where we get the pleasure from this thing that we gain, or get the pleasure from that thing that we purchase, or whatever it may be, or this achievement, or that achievement, if we somehow had the personal resources, or somehow maybe the financial resources to keep those things going, and when that pleasure kind of wanes, we get another thing, we get another thing, even if that's possible, our life is but a vapor. It's gone. So he says, store up for yourself treasure in heaven 
where moth does not restore. And he says, trust God for the provision of the mission. Trust him, not only for the provision of the mission, but trust him for the provision in life. Focus on the mission. That's the essence of Matthew chapter 6. Focus on the mission of which you've been given and trust me, God says. I am the one that has eternal resources. Trust me to take care of you. Provision for the mission and focus on the mission. Next we see peace from the mission. Peace from the mission. Whatever you say, verse 5, whatever house you enter, say first, peace be to this house. Peace be to this house. It was a blessing. It was a formal blessing that really spoke of something greater, which was an objective reality. So he says, when you enter, say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. If not, it will return to you. So this peace was a blessing, a formal blessing, in which you're saying the blessing of the Lord is here. But it was a, it was a, it was a blessing that spoke of a true objective reality, which was the fact that the Messiah, the long-awaited one, remember, especially in the Jewish context of whom he was speaking to, they've been waiting for the Messiah forever and ever and ever. And they said, the peace of the Messiah has come. Luke 2, 14, you remember in the Christmas story, when the angels come and they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward all men. You know, we talk a good game as human beings about peace in the earth, but yet we see that we year after year devolve into greater acts of violence the world over. And we think that somehow we'll find the answer within ourselves just by kind of clever slogans or marketing campaigns and maybe that speak to a slim few, but the world just gets more and more violent. You just have to look at the headlines around us. And that's because the heart of man needs to change. There is no peace, no peace in the earth that will come without Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so he says, this message, when it comes to you, it's of salvation, it's of forgiveness, and it is of peace. And he says, when you go to that place, there might be a son of peace or a person of peace there. This is a big term and really, in fact, a training tool, if you will, in UPG work. You know, we as a church have adopted the Lolo people, an unreached people group in southwest China. As we mentioned just a couple of months ago, they've been found. And so the work is starting of the missionaries there, along with Chinese churches, to reach these unreached people groups. And we'll join with that work. In fact, we've got more to report on that in November. But one of the great terminologies that you see in UPG work is a person of peace. They pray that there is someone there whom the Lord has been working in. He's been working in their heart. And they are someone who bridges the gap between those who do not know Christ as their Savior and someone whose heart might be awakened. Maybe it's someone who's even been miraculously saved. Dreams or visions, something like that, the sort of thing that you still see in mission work. In fact, we, if those of you are here last Sunday evening, the Mexico mission team shared, and they talked about this one believer that was up in this rural area and this person that was kind of like an anchor there and she desperately wanted to see the people. Come to know Christ, a son, a person of peace. God's ancient work on display. How does this relate to us? You know, much when, when you're doing UPG work, they talk about praying for that person of peace. God's evidence of an ancient work in those people. That he's been working, he's been planning, he's the sovereign, eternal God. He's been planning to see those people come to know Christ for as long as eternity. He knows it, he sees them. And it's his ancient work on display. In the same way, 
when we go out, when we take the message, when we go and we share, we know that we are not twisting in the wind, going on our own, but God has been before us. God has been planning this day. God knows our steps. God knows our words. And he goes before us doing his very ancient work. And it says this, not only when you go say peace to this house, there's a son of peace there. And if there is not, your blessing will return unto you. It basically means that there is no faith present. And what it reminds us of is that when we go, when we share our faith, we are not going with oratory skill. We are not going with persuasive technique. We are not going to win some sort of debate in which we might convince someone of Christ. We are simply called to present, to share our faith, to share the gospel, share how Jesus has changed my life, share how Jesus has made me glad. And God is the one who does the work. We present and God persuades Verse 7 and 8, we see kind of again this sort of uh, refocusing of the provision and focus for the mission. He says again, and then remain in that same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. But don't go from house to house. And whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is before you. Eat what's before you. He's basically saying, again, it's, it's kind of coming back to this idea of when you go out in the context, trust me for your provision. Don't try to go and look for more and more and better and better. The great missionary prayer, you've probably heard it when you're out in some of these little villages and eating something that's provided to them, they'll say, they'll pray, God, I'll put it down if you keep it down, right? You've probably heard that as missionaries. It's the idea that when you go, you're trusting God to provide. Again, for our context, it's that very same thing. We are in the context of our life living out Matthew chapter 6. Well, God, I'm going to store up treasure in heaven. I'm going to live my life for your mission, and I'm going to trust you. Meaning is found in the very sacrifice. When we sacrifice for the Lord, meaning is found in sacrifice. Next, we see the power for the mission. Verse 9. Verse 9, it says this. And when you go, heal the sick, and in it say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Now again, in that sort of context, we see um, in, this, in, in, in the gospel context, we also see it in the book of Acts, we saw miracles left and right that were being performed so that it, they would gather uh, the thoughts of the people, they would focus the thoughts of the people, not only to show that this Jesus Christ and those who come in his name are real, they're legitimate, they're exactly who they say they are, but it focuses the people laser-like and it says, listen up, listen to this, listen to this message of the gospel. Now, we may not see that same sort of thing in our context. We may not see the same sort of level of miracles performed that we see here in the Gospels and the book of Acts. But there is no doubt that God is the one who will open the door. We have to be faithful. We have to be faithful to take that step. We have to be faithful to kind of take that step of courage. Pray, God, give me courage to invite that person to church. Give me courage to share my faith. Again, just to invite someone to church. We simply did that the other night at dinner, just invited someone to church. Sometimes you have the opportunity to share the whole gospel with them. Sometimes it's just the opportunity to, sh to, to invite them to church, where the place, one place where the gospel will be shared and the joy of the Lord will be on full display. Power for the mission. God opens the door. And then finally, we see the limitation of the mission. The limitation of the mission. What do I mean by that? I mean this. What we are able to do and what God alone can do. What we are able to do, and what God al alone can do. We are limited, at, and, and we have to go to the point where we place 
the mission, we place the outcome of the mission in the very hand of God. It says this in these verses here in 10 and 11 and 12. It says, but whenever you enter town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say this, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe it off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, I will be, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town that rejects that message. Now, do we actually, would we share the gospel with a coworker or a friend or a neighbor? If they don't hear the good word, do we just kind of sit there and as we leave their house and just tell them, you know, we're going to do this and just say, well, fine. No, again, remember the context here. He was sending them out to these towns, uh, these Jewish towns are the ones that had all the tools and all the knowledge at their disposal that they would ever need of the Messiah. They were the ones that, like we have, have two-thirds of our very Bible that we see here. They had the message of the gospel at their fingertips. They'd been waiting for the Messiah. They'd been waiting for him. Their hearts had been ready. And here is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Here is God in flesh. And here are those that come out and tell of the good news. Here is what Jesus has done. Here is what he is teaching. Here is the good news of the message. Yet those that had been steeped in the knowledge of the Messiah, if they rejected him, it wasn't a matter of the mind. It was a matter of the heart. It was a matter of the heart. I remember preparing for doing some sharing of sharing and evangelism, and I was working on some apologetics, and that's the, that's the study of how to defend your faith. And one person I went sharing with, a, a wise old believer, told me, hey, that's good to do because sometimes there's something that's it's, it's a, it's a tripping point for someone. It's something that can kind of really push them over the edge and help them to kind of answer a question. But he's like, you can have the most well-crafted argument against evolution or whatever it may be, yada, yada, yada. But you might see, and it is the most well-crafted thing you'd ever see, but you also see a person who still rejects it because their heart is not turned to the Lord. Limitation of the mission. Some will reject the message of the gospel. Some will reject the message. And he says here in verse 12, I tell you it will be more bearable on that day. That is the return of the Lord for Sodom, that's that city that was steeped in its own sin, than for the town that rejects Christ. Why is that? On that day, on the day of the Lord, when he returns, it will be easier for the ignorant than for those that are initiated. What do I mean by that? Again, let's return to that idea of, the, of these towns in which he went to. They were going to these towns that had two-thirds of the very Bible that we hold in our hand. And they knew of the Messiah. They knew he was promised. He was long-awaited. They saw scripture that we see clearly fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but yet their hearts were dark. And he says it would be easier for Sodom than for those on that day. The, Lord, the Lord's heart is broken for people. The Lord's heart is broken for people. He says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So as we end today, here's a couple of things, a couple of admonitions, a couple of challenges for the believer. And by believer, we mean the person who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. The person who has come to their place in their life where just as we see scripturally, we agree with God that we've sinned. We agree with him. We don't try to fight it. We say, we don't say God, you know, I'm basically a good person. You know, just kind of welcome me into your family. Welcome me into heaven when I die. I'm basically a good person. We agree with God. 
and say, yes, I've sinned. That we also come to the place where we believe that the remedy for that sin is none other than Jesus Christ. His son that he sent to die on the cross for our sin. That if we believe in him, if we give our life to him, then we might be saved and forgiven. And in that, as we believe, we commit our life to Jesus Christ as our Savior, the one who cleanses and forgives us of sin, as our Savior and our Lord, the one whom we give the keys of our life to. That's a believer in Jesus Christ. That's a Christian. That's a disciple. That is a follower of Christ. For the believer, don't reject the mission that we've been given. We are God's plan A. and It is the source of our joy. For the unbeliever, the unbeliever that sits here today that has never given their life to Jesus Christ, you've clearly heard the message. You've clearly heard the gospel. Don't reject the message of God. Lord God, we come to you now. And we pray. We pray for, us, for those of us who are here that are believers. God, may we daily, may we spiritually people watch. May our eyes be open to the hurt and the need and the pain around us. God, may we as a church, may we focus not upon plans and programs and things of that nature. But Lord, may we focus on people and all of those other things just kind of fall in line. But may first and foremost, it be about your glory, your gospel, and people. God, give us a broken heart that we will spiritually people watch around us and we look upon the crowds and we are brokenhearted like Jesus because the people are like sheep without a shepherd. For those that are sitting with us today that don't know your son Jesus as their savior, may this be the day they surrender their life to him. May they finally stop saying, God, I can figure this out on my own. I think I'm basically good. May this be the day they surrender and when you reach out your hand with the free gift of salvation in your person of Jesus Christ, your son Jesus Christ, may they reach back and they say, I'm done. I am done trying to do it my way. I give my life to Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.